Lisa, I've told you many, many times that I don't read whole books necessarily. There, there must be a, a word for people who collect books and they just keep collecting them, whether they've read them or not, right? Like they're piled up on your desk and on your bookshelf. I, you, I think you have to do that. Librarian. Right? <laughs> well, look, I must be a, um, a librarian as my side hustle, okay? Because as soon as I get rid of one book, I buy like two more. But let me tell you, this one specific book has been worth every penny. This book is actually incredible. It's very simple, a very simple, com simple but complex topic uh, called How to Be an Ally. And it's written by Melinda Brianna Epler, uh, who I started following on LinkedIn a while ago. And I feel like each chapter should be a book of its own. And so this new thing that I'm looking at in particular is her figure on the stages of allyship. And she provides us seven different stages of allyship. And Lisa, if my memory is not failing me, I know we have talked about this topic before, but I don't think we've talked about it in this way. Yeah, you're right. We have talked about allyship. It's come up here and there several times because it's such an important concept, but we have not presented a model of allyship in terms of here are some of the stages you might experience. So I'm actually really excited to learn more about it. Absolutely. So let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Sarah Gross here. I'm Katherine Taylor. Sarah True here. Hey there. This is Dr. Shauna Payne Gold. Celine here. I'm Haley Chura. Hey, it's Alyssa Gadeski here. I'm a professional triathlete, Ironman champion, professional triathlete, health and fitness writer, a gravel cyclist, two time Olympian, and former All American triathlete, founder and CEO of Feisty Media. None of us would have had the opportunities we've had in sports without the passing of Title IX and the changes that came in its wake. So, as the hosts of Feisty Media's podcasts, we decided to band together and create a series to tell the stories behind the law that changed everything. This special series will be presented on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Subscribe now to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. This is nine. 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 Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code livefeisty15. So, Lisa, I, I don't read stuff. I mean, I do read it, but yes, 
I don't read books like cover to cover like a novel, right? And so usually if I see a book that I really like, I might pull several chapters that I review because I'm going to use it for something uh, because I don't like outdated scholarship and information for what I do professionally, but this book is on point. Lisa, I think you recall, I don't know how many episodes ago this was, but we did do an entire episode on learning, unlearning, and relearning, right? And how important of a concept that yeah. is in order yeah. to do this work, right? Well, the very same concept that we're going to talk about today actually came from the same book. Melinda Brianna Epler talked about that unlearn, relearn process, but she also later on in the book gives us some understanding around this journey of allyship. And Lisa, I think the... <laughs> Allies get a bad rap. Let me put it that way. I think allies get a bad rap sometimes because it's the assumption that it's on either end of the spectrum. Either you're doing nothing and you're a raggedy ass ally or <laughs> you're marching on Washington every weekend for some cause, right? And as I think about it, especially as folks outside of the DEI space that don't do this professionally, oftentimes people see it in that dichotomy. It has to either right, be one or right. the other, but it's not anything in between. And I know you would probably suggest that there's so many different ways to be an ally, right? Not just marching on Washington every weekend. Yeah, I do think we get caught in that trap. I know that, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and his um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he's essentially articulating, you know, it's, it's anti-racist or racist, right? There's not really an in-between. And I think other theories similarly don't create space for gray, but I do think about allyship perhaps is more of a continuum and less of a ally, not ally, because of mm -hmm. what you say, right? Because there are small ways that you can intervene that could actually have profound effects, but they're not joining the weekend protests, right? Right, so right. I do, I do think that there is a space here for us to think about allyship broadly, um, which mm -hmm. also creates multiple opportunities for people to engage, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why I think the word micro allyship came up was that people needed small digestible ways in order to make an impact and knowing that those small ways still work. You know, they still work just as there are microaggressions that hurt. There are also micro allyship characteristics that help. And so, you know, what can we do in those smaller spaces? But Lisa, so let's let's talk about these seven stages that she brings up. Um, okay. I am on page 196 of her book. I know you don't have a copy of her book in front of you, but let me just give you kind of the broad swath of where she's going here. She has the stage of a denier meaning that most people start in this way where they don't know that they may be causing harm without intending to. I think we should underline the without intending to. Um, and that people need you to be an ally or an advocate. So it's kind of like a throw my hands up. I'm not part of this process. As long as I'm not intentionally doing harm, then I'm not a problem. I'm not the problem here. Um, so that's kind of the denier space. And then we have the observer. So this is the person that is literally observing and testing their new understanding around allyship. So, you know, their motivation is starting to become clear. Why should they care? They're paying attention to what's going on without necessarily jumping in with both feet. And then you have this learner. 
And I've been finding, especially with a lot of folks, Lisa, I know a lot of people reach out to you saying, hey, give me a good book on this topic or give me a good podcast on that topic, et cetera. These are the people that are still the sponges, I would say. They're still soaking in information because they know they're woefully unprepared to even talk about these particular topics, much less actually take action on them. So they're still soaking things up. Then you have what Melinda calls an ally itself, which means this person is an activated person. They are taking action to reduce unintentional harm. And I love that piece because it doesn't let people off the hook if even if it was unintended, right? So I like that. Um, then Melinda goes into advocate, meaning this person advocates and leads changes. So they're not just sitting back waiting on someone to do something. They're leading and pushing for systemic change. Then we have the accomplice, which I love that particular word, the accomplice, or I would even call them the co-conspirators here. An accomplice is somebody who breaks the rules to help dismantle inequitable structures. And I like that because those that are accomplices, they have to be able to see where the system is not right in order to break it, right? They, they have to be able to identify that. And then that last piece is the activists. Those are the people I would probably categorize as marching on Washington or they've dedicated their entire lives or even their careers to creating change. So these are the people I think about, for example, Lisa, you know, I, I just uh, spent a couple days relaxing in downtown Annapolis and there's a big mural that I put on my uh, social media posts with Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Those are the folks that I would probably consider activists where they have literally dedicated their lives and their craft into creating change. So, you know, given all of that, I think, unfortunately, we have people that are kind of in the denier, maybe the observer categories, and then they hop over to, well, I'm not an activist either. So if I can't do one of the two, then I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to sit back. And so I think this whole model is pretty cool and probably quite different from anything else we've talked about when it comes to allyship in the past. Yeah. Is it circular? Like do you, or linear? Yeah. Right? That, yeah it's circular. Okay. Yeah. It's circular. And so what's interesting, it's a circular, uh, a circular kind of image or figure, if you will, and it starts with the denier, moves to observer, learner, ally, advocate, accomplice, and then it's, I don't want to say it ends at activist, but that seems to be right next to denier, which I think is really interesting. So Lisa, as we know, every visual has its flaws. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying that it's different and unique and it adds some elements that I yeah. haven't seen before, you know? So yeah, but it is circular. Definitely. Yeah, because I think about the way we've talked about models before, where people can kind of move back and forth, right? So they're not necessarily, it's not stepping mm. that once you've made it to this level, you know, like a video game, you don't go back. Um, right, right, right. So, but it's more contextual and circumstantial in terms of, you know, where you fall on this circular model like so I could see perhaps being an observer in some places and then maybe an ally in others um yes, yes. you know and maybe even a denier in some cases depending on what particular privilege it, it is that you're confronted with right because mm. certainly mm -hmm. not experts on everything and understanding the way that social privilege operates is an iceberg right like there's mm. just the water that we don't think about until it's presented to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, I think what's really interesting about the whole thing, I think you're right. I would 
if I had to use this as a lens through which to view my own allyship, I would say that I'm certainly a learner in many <laughs> and possibly someone looking outside, uh, from outside looking in at me might say I might be a denier in certain areas. Um, and so I, I would welcome that critique, if you will, because I think that really helps us to figure out what are the next steps in allyship based on the particular identity group, right? So people that observe me may know that I'm really, I would suggest an advocate or closer to an accomplice when it comes to anything related to Black identities, LGBT identities, certain identities, whereas other areas I don't have a clue on, and, and I need to have a clue. I need to be that sponge and learn. And so maybe this is a good tool for us to self-reflect and even to maybe connect with people that we trust um, to give us the truth on this, where we, we may have some work that we need to do. Right. I'm wondering, you know, we did that episode way back when um, called Nice White Triathletes. And so where, where do you think the nice white blankety blank um, <laughs> right, fits right. in here and that the, why can't we all get along? I don't mm -hmm. see color or gender. I see humans. Um, I'm a nice person. Because it doesn't quite feel like observer. It doesn't quite feel like denier either. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you have a thought on that? Oh, that's a good look. You got me thinking about, um, <laughs> look, I'm in Malcolm Gladwell outlier mode with that question because I feel like those people are the outliers that need to get onto the evolution of allyship because they've excluded themselves like it's it's almost like I, I um I, I don't know maybe a, a proximity thing or a distancing thing where that has nothing to do with me I'm not harming people which means I'm not part of the problem it, it's almost like <laughs> one of my friends says all the time you can't grade your own paper girl it's kind of like you can't determine, you know what I mean? Like you can't determine that you're not part of the problem. The people who are feeling harm get to determine whether you're part of the problem or not. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it goes deeper than denying. <laughs> Let me think about it. I, I do think it's deeper than denying. Yeah, because I mean, I definitely know folks, you know, in my life who are nice and kind and acknowledge that racism and sexism exist, right? So they're not denying its existence. They're not mm. anti-DEI training per se, yeah. but they don't see, you know, they think kindness or niceness is the solution to these persistent <sighs> problems. So it's not quite denial, but it does feel like a little deeper or off-center right like like you haven't yeah. like you said you haven't quite made it into the into mm -hmm. the allyship process <laughs> yeah 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 it's it feels a little Malcolm Gladwell-ish to me where they're kind of you know they are the outlier that we're trying to pull into the vortex if you will <laughs> we're trying to bring them in um and you know I think that you know sometimes that kindness piece <sighs> I think the kindness still breeds that um, that comfort, you know, white comfort in particular, because right, right. I, I feel more comfortable labeling everything as being kind than actually yeah. talking about how racism exists even amongst kind yeah. people. Yeah. And so it's still kind of perpetuating that comfort piece, you know? And so that's where, you know, 
-hmm. If you keep saying that you're not part of the problem and you just want to hang out in the space where you're comfortable, which is being kind. And I appreciate that. I want people to be kind, but I don't want people to be kind as a diversion from going deeper. I feel like kind is kind of like that surface level, but there's so many other, you know, levels underneath of that, that kindness can absolve you from going into. And that's a shame. Yeah. I almost think I kind of was, as you were talking, I'm thinking like, maybe we need to redefine kindness because I agree with you. Um, and I think that, is it not kind, is it not a kindness to explore your privilege and understand the ways in which you are perpetuating oppressive behaviors, comments, whatever, right? Like, um, or your Ooh. inaction in a certain situation is maybe unkind, right? So to be kind, mm. be a kind person is to be open-minded and acknowledge that if I am inadvertently doing harm, that is an unkindness right? Mm. So I wonder if that's a redefinition we need to do. Well, Lisa, no, it doesn't count unless I'm doing it intentionally. The the oppression doesn't count if I did. That's the logic that we're talking about here is that, oh, well, you know, you tripping over my shoe and breaking your leg is that didn't really happen if I didn't do it intentionally. Get out of here. It did happen. It did hurt. And it doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not. So yeah, I, I I feel like that intentionality piece always gets to override how people feel and how, how they're hurt or harmed by something. So yeah, that doesn't make sense to me though. Right. Like in that example of tripping someone up and, you know, mm -hmm. like that's unkind. Right. And it's further more unkind to deny it ever happened, you know? Like to not take responsibility for it. Exactly. To not take responsibility for it. And so, you know, for me, I'm like, do I want people, like, I I think you're right. I think we do need to redefine kindness. And I think we need to prioritize what's, what's important here, you know, because some people don't want to get called out on their lack of kindness. You know, they don't want to get called out on their depth and, And that's what I really despise about the whole process is that, you know, a lot of people, I've seen it happen before where they were, I don't want to say called out because that sounds so heinous, but they were named as complicit with harm. And all of a sudden I felt like I was in the damn twilight zone because the whole situation flipped where going back to our tripping example, it would literally be like the person has broken their leg and they're sitting there in pain, but the person who quote unquote accidentally left the shoe that was tripped over is the one weeping on the side because you've implicated them for leaving the damn shoe out. Like that makes no sense in a logistical world. So why would that make sense in a DEI world? But that's what we do all the time is that the person who has the most power that happens to be right. named right. ends up, you know, really being the one that's prioritized. And it's a shame. And, and then people start to get defensive about it. I'm like, get out of here. Really? Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, we've talked about defensiveness, probably ad nauseum for some of our listeners, but I just feel like we don't, we get in our way, right? We have good intentions of wanting to be kind or ally or whatever. And then our defensiveness derails everything. And we can't see the forest for the trees because 
we're, you know, so caught up in that feeling of hurt, which is where defensive yes. comes from and just centers yes. our own feelings again. And um, yes. I've certainly been there. I know what that feels like in the body, um, but it's right. not, you know, it, you're right. Mm-hmm. It isn't productive and it's a distraction. It's a complete distraction. Well, and okay, so let's take it to another level then, Lisa, because as I'm thinking about Melinda's, uh, you know, figure here of how allies evolve and there's seven different um, stops on this circular kind of visual, what I think is really important that I didn't put together when I first saw this is that feelings are not included in any of the seven descriptors, Not, not even the deniers. Okay. Feelings are not included in any of these, right? And, you know, I've, I've said it often, but I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate it well, is that, you know, when someone is named for a harm or oppression against a person, how do we move so quickly to being offended? And then that becomes prioritizing your feelings as someone who harmed rather than prioritizing the feelings of the person who actually was harmed. And so as I'm looking at this ally figure, there's not one iota of this that mentions the ally's feelings. Right, right. And so I'm not saying to dehumanize people, but it's not a priority because we're talking about the oppressed underrepresented person not the person that's attempting to be an ally yeah I, I just think it's interesting it is interesting right because it's probably it's almost certainly purposeful um because, uh, yeah you know this isn't this model that you're describing is about allyship it's not about selfship <laughs> you know <laughs> so you know, mm-hmm. with, if you want to be an ally or attempt to be an ally or an accomplice or an observer, mm-hmm. learner, like part of that is you have to put your feelings in a pot and put yes. them on the shelf. But I say that with the little asterisks being that it's also important, I think, to understand your feelings and try and di- to dissect where they're coming from, right? Like, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's learning in acknowledging one's feelings about some of this stuff. So, mm-hmm. but. It, it's not the center of the issue um right right right. you know and you've said to me several times that there's very little if any examples in U.S. history where you know white people's needs and feelings haven't been centered um and Mm -hmm. the feelings of people who are harmed often violently don't matter right Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's what, (laughs) so let's, let's go to the model when it talks about the learning piece, right? And, you know, people that are absorbing information as part of that model in the book, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, the author talks about looking outside their normal avenues of learning and participating events and working to expand their network to understand other groups, right? And what I think is so powerful about that is, you know, how do we continue to push? You know, how do we continue to push ourselves and also allow people within those communities that we want to learn about, how do we allow them to push us? Um, Because, you know, you brought up a great point. One of our mutual friends posted on LinkedIn about, quote, meeting people where they are. And 
on the face of it, I'm thinking that's not a bad idea. People, I mean, we as educators have actually been groomed that way, right? Like you wouldn't walk into a yeah. kindergarten class and yeah. teach quantum physics, right? And so, you know, given that, I think that's what's interesting about it is, are we continuing to meet people where they are? And, and to connect back to what I was mentioning before, we're meeting people where they are and many of those people are outliers and therefore we're having to struggle to get them onto the model at all. And I'm not sure we should be taking on that responsibility. I think they should be taking on that responsibility for themselves. Yeah, I, I definitely have been told so many times that in this work, we have to meet people where we're at, otherwise where they're at rather, or we'll lose them. Mm. And it does seem intuitive, right? That seems to make sense, but mm. it, it continues to cent center comfort, the comfort of the person that is potentially complicit in the oppression. Um, yes, yes, you know, yes, yes. How much do we pander to that when they're not gonna move? Um, and yes. maybe, you know, a big nudge into discomfort will actually move them, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're, you're making me think about something. So this is, um, this is a shout out to my youngest, Kendrick, who's in second grade. So when they're doing math, they've been recently doing more on money math. Um, so, you know, anything related to money itself, U.S. dollars. What I think is so interesting is that his teacher takes them through a battery of questions on most days that they have money math. But the final question that she asked them, she calls it the humdinger, right? Because it's a question that's not a second grade level question. It's a third grade level question to push them out of their comfort zone to help them to think. And then she gives them a little reward of some sort, right? I and so I'm, I'm, yeah, so I'm not trying, I'm not trying to minimize people's growth. But what I am saying is that really good educators may be able to do a little bit of both where they're very clear on where the person is, but also they're pushing and shoving to get them to that next place. And so throwing that humdinger in really helps them think beyond what they already know, because those questions that she asked them are very comfortable to them. They can answer them. They're, they're, they're what's called mental math. They don't need to write anything down, nothing. They can just do it in their heads. The humdingers, she gives them a chance to get a piece of paper, get a pencil get whatever you might need to help you figure it out but I think maybe we're not throwing in enough humdingers for people or people aren't open to the humdingers and therefore they just they they go running you know they, they divorce yeah. themselves from that discomfort when it comes to those humdingers that you and I easily give out <laughs> we easily give out humdingers right yeah and it just you know um friend of mine is trying to you know, navigating a, a difficult situation and trying to build some confidence. And her partner said to her, well, how do you build confidence? You build confidence by having knowledge, right? Which uh -huh. is part of that learner level of allyship. And I, so I think that the, the comfort, the learning at your own pace enables mm -hmm. you to build some confidence around some of these issues, but that's not enough to move you along the continuum, right? Mm -hmm. But once you're starting to feel confident with concepts and, you know, the historical context, then you do need those humdingers. Humdingers, is that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. That's <laughs> um, you know, it. you need those because otherwise I think you won't take the step to the next place. So then you'll just be 
you know, because the more you stay in the same place and more your confidence grows, the less likely you are to want to leave it because Ooh. you feel very comfortable, very confident, and even an expert in that one place, right? Mm. Um, and so the idea of going to the next level, like, you know, in karate or other martial arts where you move in the belts, right? You take a yes. test and then you kind of go down to the bottom and you're like the next belt and you have to work your way back up again. But that, that's right. there's a lot of humility involved in going from the top to the bottom, but that's an important piece of all of this, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I think you and I went through that a little bit with um, one, one of our shared clients where, you know, I would say very confidently that you and I are extremely comfortable with DEI concepts, understandings, theory, application, research in a U.S. context, right? But <laughs> if we're in Asian countries or if we're, we're outside of the U.S. and for you also outside of the U.K., that extreme level of comfort diminishes for us because now we're thinking about DEI in spaces and contexts that we are not used to. And therefore our expert level, it's not that it doesn't exist, but we have to, we, we have a growing edge. Let's put it that way. When it comes to applying yeah. those concepts yeah. in countries where some of our language doesn't even exist for our field. Right. And so I, I think there's a lot of humility in that, you know, and I think we should embrace it because now that's forcing me to learn about different contexts where DEI may be developing differently. Right. I think that's reasonable, but it, it is un- uncomfortable as hell. Okay. It's uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. Does the author say anything about how a person moves along this continuum? Is there anything that we could leave our listeners with that might be useful? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, a few things, and I, I won't, I won't give you the answers to them because I'm not sure if she provides them. I think she provides thought provokers, but a few things that uh, Melinda mentions in the book, she mentions, for example, let's say I'm a person with an underrepresented identity. Why do I need to be an ally when I'm already overburdened, right? So that's one. Another thing that she mentions, what do I do when I mess up, right? Because we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. We've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast. Also asking the question of what is canceling or what is public shaming? And should I do that to other people? What's the usefulness of that, which I think is interesting. Um, And then she goes into um, asking the question, how do I convince people that allyship is important? Right. So kind of that living in community piece. Um, And of course, what to do when you're not in a leadership position or you you may think you're not in a a leadership position. What do you do when your role is plugged into the system, but it may not be so high on the org chart? So lots of really good questions there to think about. And I think we could apply them to endurance sport pretty easily. Yeah. And so she's saying that these are questions you have to ask yourself and grapple with to in order to move through some of these stages or levels or places on her Mm -hmm. allyship continuum. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, she makes it clear too, that you can be in two places at one time, you can cycle back, cycle forward. Uh, It definitely is not linear based on, on her interpretation of this. So, yeah. And one, one quick quote that I want to mention uh, as we wrap up that I think is really important. Um, she mentions allyship is more than intention. It is more than words and positioning yourself as an ally. 
allyship is earned based on learning, getting uncomfortable, going past any fears you may have, and taking action that benefits people with underrepresented identities. Allies do the work. So I, I think that really kind of encapsulates a lot that we've talked about um, in regards to that comfort, you know, and, and getting out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really a great way to wrap up the episode, I think, because that's such an important way of framing allyship. And I know that we have talked about that we do not mm-hmm. have to call ourselves allies or co-conspirators or accomplices, right? That that mm-hmm. is a label yeah. that is bestowed upon us by folks who are experiencing harm. So I really love the way that she framed that there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Lisa. So I'm sure we always have plenty of hell naws and we do have hell yes today as well. Did you want to start us out with a hell naw? Hell yeah. Hell no. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> I said that in a very kind of like upbeat <laughs> tone. It's not uh-huh. that upbeat. Um, right, so- right. For all the Star Wars fans out there, you will be aware that recently that a new mini series um, dropped on Disney Plus, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. So Ewan McGregor is reprising his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi. I have not yet watched, um, but will. And Mm -hmm. there is a new um, star that is a part of this series. And she is played by Moses Ingram, and she's the first woman of color to have a starring role in a Star Wars franchise. And so, as you also will know, that Star Wars has historically been pretty white and pretty male, um, and mm. has described at least the early um, films did to pretty rigid gender roles. And that's changed over time. And Disney has actually become quite progressive over time, given where mm. it So that's kind of interesting in and of itself. But anyway, so the series dropped and uh, she plays Inquisitor Reva. And it sounds like afterwards, she has since received a slew of racist and sexist uh. comments on social media coming left, right and center. Um, Disney has responded in in support as they should and has uh, made their position very clear but I Mm -hmm. think the issue really the hell no here is that it's so (sighs) heinous Um, it's not even the word that it doesn't that doesn't really capture it about the fact that we start to diversify some of these older stories and older um, beloved um movies mm-hmm. and you know books and such and it gets such a huge backlash and that mm-hmm. people think that they can do that online and troll her and abuse her and feel like they have no responsibility for their actions so yeah the people feel that they can do that right and this is one of the bad things about social media and i just you know hate people when that happens which is not mm-hmm. really me, but I'm just like like get it together right get it together right 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 exactly exactly oh my goodness yeah it, it kind of reminds me of when uh Bridgerton first came out on Netflix and people were kind of in this uproar on about Queen Charlotte being a woman of right. color you right. remember that yep. yeah and um when Shonda Rhimes and and her uh, producers and so forth said 
actually, you know, we're not miscasting anything. We're casting things the way they actually were, which is different from what you've probably experienced. So yeah, uh, uh, that's so frustrating. So frustrating. But I know that this particular podcast is going to air during June, which is Pride Month here in the United States. And so I have a couple of things that really made me super, super happy. Um, the first thing is um, Lisa knows that I am a Barbie collector. Um, in fact, I have uh, my mom's Barbie back from, I think, the early 60s. I still have that one. Uh, but I been continuing to add uh, to my collection of Barbies. And so I'm super excited to say that I already clicked the link. Thank goodness it was still in stock, but barely. They had a limit on how many you could purchase. But Barbie has released its first ever transgender doll and it's styled after Laverne Cox the actress yes so I have ordered mine mine is on the way um and it was really intended to celebrate Laverne's 50th birthday which is really cool and so Mattel is releasing a tribute collection Barbie doll made in her likeness and so I'm really thrilled about it um it really kind of captures who she is the fashion the blonde hair it has a a, um, a deep red gown, um, the silver boots on. I mean, just it, it embodies exactly who Laverne Cox is. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to hear Laverne speak uh, when I was still working at University of Maryland. Um, and this really embodies what I, I think is her, her perspective anyway. And so given this, what I think is really interesting is that, of course, Mattel is assuming that this is going to really speak to adults, right? Us adult collectors, because very few children have seen Laverne Cox in, you know, Orange is the New yeah. Black, for example, like, you know, kids have not seen her in that. Um, and so most of us adults will probably be picking her doll up. Um, and so this is the very first time that Mattel has released a transgender Barbie doll. And um, this particular doll is not the first LGBT person to be turned into a Barbie. Also, Billie Jean King, which I cannot find because she sold out. Um, Billie Jean King uh, is the first lesbian athlete uh, that was uh, turned into a Barbie as part of his Inspiring Women series. So yay for Laverne Cox. I'm super happy. I'm really glad that I got to place my order. Um, and then the, the last thing that I will say is that Yay and hell yeah to Canada, right? Um, I, I don't know how to sing Oh Canada, but you know where I'm going here. Um, Canada is the first country to provide census data on transgender and non-binary people. And even when I read this, Lisa, I kind of did the, the sideways head thing, like really, this is, this is the first country to do this. Um, but from what we know, is that Canada is the first country to collect and publish data on gender diversity from a national census. And they break it down based on generations. So Gen Z, millennials, et cetera. And so definitely we'll drop the link in the show notes, but we're really happy that um, data is actually being captured and published because we know that you know the numbers speak. You know, Lisa and I, uh, we crunch data as our... Uh, <laughs> as our cardio um, when it comes to data. And so given that, we're really happy about this because this can certainly lead to more resources um, for trans and non-binary folks in Canada. So we're thrilled for that. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. 
their main focus? The iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.